Welcome to Keep You 100 Radio. I'm your host, Felicity Pointer, type 1 diabetic, certified health coach, personal trainer, and founder of Needles and Spoons Health and Wellness. Inside this podcast, you'll find the real and raw conversations around diabetes management, including the lessons that we don't learn in our endos office, my best tips and trainings, and conversations from the experts that I trust inside the community so that you can create more predictability in your diabetes management and feel empowered while doing so. Let's dive in. Hello, welcome to another episode of Keeping It 100 Radio. I'm back with another Keep 100 alumni, Anne Farnway. I practiced <laughs> right before <laughs> we just hit the recording um, button, but Anne was a Keep 100 client of ours. I want to say it was earlier this year, right? We we're supposed mm-hmm. to have this year. Feels like mm-hmm. literally so long ago. This is so weird. <laughs> yeah. But we were just talking about, I, I like really want to share this because I, this was something new that I found out just before we hit the record button, but I just found out that your last name was actually something that you and your wife kind of created together. And I love to hear again, like that story behind that. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, yeah, we, so my, my partner and I both have weird, um, kind of like difficult German last names that were our, our maiden names. And so we were trying to figure out a way to kind of fit them together. And neither of us felt like super keen to just assume the other person's name. So we're like, how can we create a hybrid or, and it was clunky to make it like hyphenated. So we started brainstorming, like maybe we can, you know, kind of honor the German heritage piece by choosing a, a German word or something that resonates. And so we chose Fernway, which um, is a German word that means like wanderlust. Um, it's kind of the closest translation and because um my partner and I love to travel and like that was a big part of our dating life was exploring new places and um yeah so we chose that um uh, name to kind of honor that piece and tie it all together I just love that so much because I feel like it really suits you I mean just from what I know about you you love like nature mm-hmm. and being in you know you're living in Vermont so it just made so much mm-hmm. sense what where's like your favorite place that you two have traveled together Ooh, probably Iceland. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. Yeah, that was actually, that was the the first place we went where we, first place we went together and that's where we started dating randomly was in Iceland. And then um, we returned several years later and actually got married there. So that was where we had our I wedding. I didn't know that either. <laughs> yeah. This is like a fun, like. I feel like we've known each other for a while now, and these are just questions I never really asked. So I'm, this is awesome. This is so fun. That's amazing. How, like, did you have a small wedding then, or just like family? Like, yeah, we have a very small wedding. There were probably 35 people there. Um, oh, wow. And probably 10 of them were the wedding party. So. No, I'm here for it. I really wanted like a dust. I mean, we had a quote unquote destination wedding. It was in Virginia, which is five hours away, but I'm like, all of our family were like, why are you getting married so far? I'm like, hey, it could be a lot. <laughs> I mean, it could be Iceland. It could be Iceland, but that is <laughs> definitely better views. So <laughs> I'm here for it. So yeah, I that met you earlier. <laughs> I met you earlier mm-hmm. this year and we had kind of chatted. Um, it was in the very, it was somewhat in the beginning of your journey. I feel like you have like this two part journey with diabetes and I would love to kind of go into that a little bit do you mind sharing like your diagnosis and just yeah your journey so far yeah absolutely um yeah it was it was bizarre and out of the blue um 
I, there's no history of diabetes in my family. Um, and in fact, I always kind of had this vision of my health future um, growing up that the, the women in my family live long, healthy lives. And they like, you know, kick the bucket as they're fully functional as 98, you know, that kind of, and I was like, oh, well, great. I'm like set up well. I've got, you know, good genes in my favor. And um, so right after I turned 33, so this was in 2019, um, my wife and I had just moved to a new state. So I was setting up like with my new GP and just getting kind of the nuts and bolts of standard health uh, support in line. And my um, GP noticed that my thyroid looked a little bit enlarged and she's like let's just run some standard blood work and see if anything's going on and from that blood work and I was like totally asymptomatic feeling fine like you know doing my thing and um they discovered at that time that I had Hashimoto's and um diabetes and my A1C at that point was 10.6 um, and it was in the period between when they did that blood work and when they actually gave me the diagnosis that I started to feel like I was starting to get like pins and needles in my feet and I was starting to kind of feel weird. Um, so the timing really great. Like I'm so grateful I didn't have the, the horror DKA um, story that so many T1Ds have. Um, yeah. But yeah, so um, they initially, my GP initially said it's probably type two. And then she referred me to an endocrinologist who thankfully immediately did some testing um, to confirm whether or not it was type one or type two and found that um, I did have antibodies present. And, but that my pancreas was still kind of functioning um, and doing a little bit of work. So we were able to put off starting insulin for three and a half years. Um, and it was a very strange <laughs> uh, limbo state where I had a really, really restrictive diet um, that there was just no freedom around food. And so when I did start insulin, it was almost a weird blessing because I finally got to enjoy the things that I had missed so much and not just the food itself, but also the, the social component and the cultural component that comes along with it. Um, and that just started almost exactly a year ago is when I started insulin. Yeah. yeah. I, I feel like, I mean, I was diagnosed at 19 and that felt like a whirlwind. So being mm -hmm. in your thirties and being diagnosed, I'm just curious from the perspective of somebody who doesn't have family history or just general information about, you know, general knowledge about diabetes, what was your first instinct when the GP originally diagnosed with you or assumed you were diagnosed with type two? Well, I was confused because so that my, my context for diabetes and my understanding of diabetes at the time of diagnosis was largely based on when I was in my twenties, I worked at a summer camp and we had one week every summer that was ADA week. And so we, all the kids that came were type one. And so I got to live with these kids for a week and kind of um, see the ebbs and flows of their days. And um, like, I was part of the the midnight crew. This was before CGM. So I was part of the midnight crew that would go around and like prick everyone's fingers and do tests in the middle of the night to make sure that everyone was stable. And so I had this taste of what type one was at least. And so I was, um, 
I was afraid in that limbo period before I was like, is this type one? Is this type two? I was like, oh God, like, I kind of hope it's type two because I had, you know, this idea that maybe that's manageable. Maybe I could get that, you know, into remission. I don't, yeah, I just had a lot of ideas of like, maybe that would somehow be easier to navigate. Um, And I was, yeah, really it hit really hard when they were like, no, this is type one and insulin dependence is absolutely in your future. It's just a matter of when. Right. That is really interesting because I feel like for a lot of for most people, it's kind of the opposite. You have kind of this introduction to type two and all the negative stigmas that come with that. So Mm -hmm. when I was diagnosed, that's all I knew. That's all I knew about. I assumed, you know, again, all the stigma of whether you're type one or type two, you did this to yourself, which I hate that stereotype, by the way, for whatever type of diabetes. Mm -hmm. But you almost had this flip-flop of your, like you had more um, experience around type ones and you knew what came with that territory. So that almost seemed, I guess, a little bit more intimidating. Yeah. I think exactly that. And and because I didn't have as much context for what life with type two would be like, um, that it was like, <laughs> yeah, it just was a little bit more amorphous. And so I was like, oh, well, maybe that would be better um, right. than the T1D uh, experience that I'd witnessed. So when you were in that weird limbo period between when you're formally diagnosed with type one, but not on insulin yet, like what did those conversations look like? And what did that, yeah, like what's, what did life look like in that period? That's a long time. It was a long time. And I, it was, now that I'm past that point, like out of that three and a half year limbo, I, I can see, I can experience some gratitude for that season of life. Um, at the time, I was extremely angry. I was extremely bitter. And I was also like, I've been a stable weight for most of my life. Um, just like that's where my body finds its homeostasis. And I dropped 30 pounds when um, during that three and a half year period, because I just, I was not able to fuel my body in the way that it needed. Um, so I was <laughs> angry probably for that reason. and also for just the emotional toll of, um, uh, of, of knowing what was coming, but not knowing when it was coming and just feeling, um, a lot of emotions around how unfair it felt. I'm like, why me? What? This seems so random. I don't know anyone with type one, like kind of having those thoughts of like, what did I do? What did I do wrong? What did I do to deserve this? Um, so it was mentally and emotionally so hard and so heavy. (laughs) Um, and I just, yeah, I felt alone and isolated and, and even trying to reach out to the type one community and like find other folks who at least had some context, even in those situations, I felt isolated because I was in this limbo state because Mm -hmm. I couldn't identify with, you know, what it was like to have a life-threatening low because I wasn't on insulin. I, I'm only ever dealing with highs at this point. Um, so, yeah, just really hard. <laughs> it is, yeah, it's definitely like a weird in-between. And 
especially when you're trying to find somebody to relate. I'm sure that's really difficult. And that's why I'm glad that you agreed to do this podcast because I'm sure that there's somebody listening that is maybe in that limbo state or has been there before and maybe they don't have that that story to resonate with. And that's really isolating. Um, I know I like yeah. when I was first diagnosed, it felt that way too because I didn't know that other people were diagnosed so late in life. Like, not, I mean, 19 mm. still felt really late to me. And I was like, any yeah. everybody else that I met was being diagnosed at like seven or eight years old. And I was like, okay, but I have all this pre-existing experience without life like this. Like, I can't really relate to anybody. So, I mean, yeah. like, how how did that time period, like, affect your, I mean, like, just going back to your last name choice, like, Wonderlust, like, you enjoy traveling. Like, you're, you know, I know that, I think from our conversations, you had recently moved to Vermont or have, am I getting that wrong? Yeah. Yeah, we, we moved to Vermont right before COVID hit. So it was like three months before I was diagnosed. Yeah. Yeah. How did that affect like your, your social life, the, Mm -hmm. the experiences that you were having? What did that look like? Yeah. Well, I think, I think the diagnosis in combination with COVID um, just exacerbated everything because yeah, suddenly I I wasn't traveling. Um, I wasn't able to like have these experiences that I, was so desperate to. Um, and so even the things that felt accessible with that diagnosis, I couldn't do because of COVID. Um, so yeah, it was, it was really challenging. And only now am I starting to kind of come out of that of like, okay, let's like, like for instance, I'm taking my first um, plane flight since I started insulin in like two weeks, I'll be going down to Florida. Um, Yeah. So now, but now I have to figure out, okay, like how do I pack my insulin and how do I, you know, I have to read up on how to go through security uh, in a way that doesn't compromise my medical supplies. And like, what do I have with me versus my carry on? So there are all those questions to to navigate. Um, So it it was, it was strange having that, that limbo period. in that I, I so badly did not want to start insulin because I knew how complicated my life would get once I did. Um, and I was desperate to start insulin because I knew all the opportunities it would open up for me. Um, so I'm, yeah, I was very much like dreading it and looking forward to it at the same time. Such a double-edged sword. Yeah. The, it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What was your doctor like telling you at this point, like during this in between? Like, what like, what advice were they giving you? What support were they giving you? Not a whole lot uh, of anything. Um, I saw them probably every six months, uh, and they would do another round of blood work just to see how my numbers were doing and if, you know, basically checking in to see if my pancreas was still functioning enough for me to exist without additional insulin. Um, but I. During that time, the endocrinologist that diagnosed me left the practice uh, shortly after I was diagnosed. And so I was shifted to a different endocrinologist who then left the practice and I was shifted to another. So I had probably six endocrinologists in the first year and a half. Oh, my God. Yeah. Which also didn't help because some of them had never heard of Lada. Some of them had, you know, no experience with this strange type 1.5, so to speak. Um, 
And so trying to communicate my situation to a new doctor on repeat for months uh, was really tiring. Um, eventually, I was able to find like to, um, my initial endocrinologist <laughs> who diagnosed me uh, had just moved to a different practice, uh, maybe 30 minutes away. So I switched back to her and she was able to give me a little bit more guidance as things moved on. Um, but that was actually one of the reasons that I sought out keeping it 100 was because when we finally made the decision, okay, it's time for you to start insulin. Um, I got a 10 minute conversation of basically here's how you use an insulin pen. And that was it. Um, there was no instruction on like insulin to carb ratios. In fact, insulin to carb ratios and um, correction factors like I'd never heard of these things before I started keeping one hundred, <laughs> which is crazy because they're so bare. Like those are the basics, right? Like those are things like you really have to know. Yeah, I, I mean, I I don't think you can't do this without it. <laughs> right, right. Well, okay. Yeah. I want to I want to dive into that, but I want to backtrack just a second mm -hmm. for anybody who's listening that might not know what Lada is. Like, do you mind just sharing a little bit about that and? Yeah, how that's different. This, like, yeah, so go into that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So it's entirely possible you can get diagnosed with full blown type 1 diabetes at any age, as we know. Um, and then there's this weird, they call it type 1.5 or LADA, which stands for latent autoimmune diabetes in adults. Um, so that's what I was technically diagnosed with. And it's basically a slower moving form of type 1. So it is an autoimmune disorder. It's just that it it can take years, like in my case, uh, for your pancreas to fully give up the ghost. Um, so if it's caught early enough, then you can have this weird honeymoon liminal phase that I did. Um, but sometimes it's not caught early enough um, or like caught in that phase. But um, so, so that's the big difference between LADA and straight up type one. Um, and the other thing is that LADA also is often accompanied by insulin resistance or some level of insulin resistance, which I think is another factor that stumps people, particularly doctors and why they're very quick to just be like, oh, you're probably type two. Mm -hmm. um, but that's something I've definitely noticed as well is that my um, insulin to carb ratios are a lot higher, lower. I was, I need more insulin. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Um, so, and, and that's something that I've also, <clears throat> excuse me, had to kind of uh, do a little bit of mental unpacking around like, that doesn't mean I'm doing anything wrong, that I need more insulin. It's just where my body's at. And I think that's something we talked about in Absolutely. keeping 100. Yeah, we had a lot of conversations around that. And I feel like it's so, like, I feel like no no form of diabetes is ideal and it's weird because like when you're type one it's almost like for me it's whiplash like overnight hey you're you're type one tomorrow you'll be on insulin and then you know xyz and then with lada like especially in your scenario it's almost like a it can feel like a taking time bomb i'm sure of just okay like what's the next move what's the next move when is this gonna happen and i feel like neither scenario is ideal but it's oh man yeah, that's a really, and then to be diagnosed with a, another condition on top of that at the same time, 
did that impact like how you felt at all or was that kind of more a more simple experience no that was well in some ways that felt in the moment that felt like the more pressing issue because they found that not only did I have Hashimoto's but that there were some that they're basically tumors on my thyroid they call them nodules um and so they were doing a bunch of scans and taking biopsies and um which are incidentally very painful and uncomfortable um so that whole process was basically trying to determine do I have cancer and so I was like okay well we've we've figured out that I have LADA we figured out that I don't need insulin right now so I was able to be like okay I'm just going to not eat carbs and set that aside and then let's focus on whether or not I have cancer um so and that probably took a good eight or nine months because we kept getting um inconclusive results so we had to keep redoing tests and yeah it was a really long protracted <laughs> experience oh my gosh yeah every every experience I hear is like you're diagnosed you got on medication and you just kind of like wait for it to regulate but you just had these two big experiences happen at the same time which is not ideal yeah yeah it was a big like like you said, a whiplash moment. I was just like whoa I went from you know being having this one kind of vision and trajectory for life to like a complete shift of course very right. uh oof, unsettling did that feel like an identity shift a bit huge yeah huge yeah and and especially during that that time when uh before I was on insulin because I was so low energy I was basically you know low level starving um and was also dealing with uh like depression and anxiety and all of these things that were coming up around um just having this major health shift and uh, so it was really limiting to about like what I could do and how I could show up in the world. Um, so suddenly I wasn't the person that I thought I was or like the things that I, I used to identify myself and like the core pillars I thought of who I was as a human were suddenly challenged. It was like, oh, well, I, I'm a runner. It's like, oh, well, I don't have the energy to run. So what does that mean about me? Or like, oh, I'm a really compassionate person who uh, shows up for my friends above and beyond. And it's like, oh, well, now I have to bow out of things because I'm exhausted and because I didn't sleep through the night because I was in the 300s. Like, mm-hmm. so suddenly I had to really reevaluate what made me me and realize that some of the things that I had pinned so much of my identity on um, needed to shift. Yeah. I can relate to that so much. And granted, we had two different experiences, but in, in at the same point, like when you're, you're diagnosed as an adult, you already have so many experiences behind you that shape who you are. Sorry, I can hear my dog barking. Um, and yeah, I like just entered college. And at this point, I was like, okay, I'm ready to become this person. I'm ready to travel. I'm ready to find, you know, a little bit more of who I am. I, I want to start a family when I'm older. And then all at yeah. that point, it's like, can I travel? Can I like, will somebody like want a partner with type one diabetes? Will I be able to have a, you start to question every little thing, especially after, Mm -hmm. I mean, for me, I was a gymnast, a competitive gymnast of 10 years. I was used to feeling strong and right. Like unstoppable. No family history of anything. Health trajectory seemed good. (laughs) And then 
who who the heck am I? And you hate being identified as sick or weak or like that's the word. It yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 100%. Ugh. So at what point, okay, so at what point did you and your doctor decide, okay, it's time to shift gears and start insulin and kind of change our treatment plan? Yeah, so that, uh, yeah, it was about a year ago when I went in for um, uh, just a regular round of blood work and another A1C. And uh, for the first Three or so years after diagnosis, I was, my A1C was around like six, um, which was great. I mean, from a blood sugar perspective, but it was uh, killing me to to maintain that. And so um, last year, about this time, went in for a new A1C and it was hitting 8.9. So that was the first time we saw kind of a significant jump. And so at that point, she, um, my endocrinologist brought out a test Dexcom, like a a sample Dexcom or a, yeah, one that they had on hand at the clinic Mm -hmm. and um, gave that to me for a week so we could kind of see what my blood sugars are doing. And yeah, like I was kind of perpetually just riding high. I was never really coming down to a reasonable level. And so that's when she, she made the call and she was like, why don't we just start you on long-acting insulin, um, see how that goes. And so we did that, and I pretty quickly realized that I that wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and apparently, I don't know if this is true for all insurance companies, but my insurance company would not allow you to have a Dexcom unless you're on rapid-acting as well. Interesting. Um, yeah. And I was really frustrated by that. but. It, it ended up working out okay because I was really, I really was keen to have that level of information, that that data around what my body is doing, how is it responding to insulin, um, and so I was able to get a CGM as soon as I started that rapid act, rapid acting, which was maybe a week after the long acting. Okay, so you were just finger pricking at that point, just to kind of see what was going on. Mm-hmm. And when you were so when you started on the rapid acting, you were, I mean, you're, st- you're still on injections, right? You'd have mm-hmm. changed it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so your doctor pretty much just said like, here's a crash course in using it. Like what was the information that you were given? Yeah, it was basically, um, they had a little, like a, a pillow or something. And they're like, this is how deep you put it in. And like, <laughs> this is how you like, manually depress the button so like inject and this is how you like turn the dial to see how many units you're giving um but that was about it that was the extent of and she 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 also gave me the instruction she's like just start out with like a unit or two uh per meal and so i did that and it like basically did nothing and i was like wow <laughs> i think i need a lot more than this and so i was i mean yeah so i'm it's it took uh, me doing a lot of trial and error with myself, um, without any guidance from my endocrinologist of being like, this is not enough insulin. I am going to make the executive decision to give myself more. (laughs) Good for you. Because also like, that's terrifying. Just like when you think of the power of insulin and how much of an effect that can have on your body at any given point, like to not have the right amount of guidance around that, that's really like, that can be shooting in the dark. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and to think too, that we, this is the only disease that I know of where you as the patient, often with like, as we're saying next to no training, have a control over the dosage of a potentially lethal drug on a like minute to minute basis. Yeah. And that's bonkers to me. It's very intimidating. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, yeah. And like now you have more awareness around what your body needs, but figuring that out and trusting yourself to, I'm so glad that you got support. So like, where, where were you in that point when you said like, okay, I need an extra set of eyes or I just need extra information, education around this and decided Mm -hmm. to reach out about Keep 100? Yeah, so it was probably a month after I started insulin that you all were opening it up for a new session. Um, so I think it was like late December of 2022. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I'd been on insulin for a month and I was very quickly realizing that I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, and I was flying completely blind and was making my best guess. But again, like I, I had no idea about insulin to carb ratios. I didn't know how to calculate uh, what my long acting should be. Like I don't didn't know how to basal test and nothing. So I didn't even know that those options existed. Um, and I was so desperate to find some community, to find some other people who have experienced this and like uh, would help me not have to recreate the wheel. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so I was, I was just desperate and especially having just gone through the holidays of like, this is a challenging time uh, around food mm-hmm. <laughs> and family with lots of expectations and lots of ideas about what it means to be diabetic. And I was like, I just, I cannot do this in a vacuum. I cannot do this by myself. Yep. Yeah. I remember getting your email saying like, hey, like I am ready to jump in and I want to experience this because this is where I'm at. And it's almost like that point is such an interesting point to be in because it's so empowering to say, I want to figure this out. I'm not going to just remain complacent with what my doctor is telling me because obviously there's something about that that's not quite working right now. And it's like you're you're kind of you're halfway up the mountain. Like you're almost there where you can see the see the view. I don't know if my metaphors are really metaphoring right now, mm-hmm. but you know, like Love it. so I'm really excited that you took that leap and that you had the support that you did. Because I know obviously that's a conversation with your partner that you have to experience. And just like it's really vulnerable to say like to type one diabetes diabetes in general, looking at numbers, looking at your habits, looking at things that you don't know, that's a very vulnerable position to be in. And to go out and ask for Mm. support, that's, oh man, it's hard. So I'm really glad that you felt like that was an empowering choice for you, especially after the three years of kind of being in this limbo state. Oh man, thank you. It's very validating. (laughs) (laughs) And I I, I feel like I had, um, again, looking back and seeing some of the, the, things worth being grateful for around my limbo period um, is that during that period, I, I got to experience how firsthand, how my doctors just didn't have the time or the resources that I needed. 
So I got to experience that on repeat. I also got to um, kind of plug into the diabetes online community a little bit and hear other people's stories and just get some context for what I was going through um, and and context for what was coming down the Mm -hmm. road for me. Um, So that honestly set me up really well for when I started insulin to be like, okay, I know my doctors will probably not be able to give me the support that I need. I'm going to, I'm going to like take, take the bull by the horns and just get it, get it for myself and speak it out. So I feel like, like an experience, what you were describing when you were 19 of being diagnosed in this like whiplash moment of being um, like healthy, like person with this one trajectory to whew, I am now type one diabetic. Like suddenly you're having to go straight into that with, um, without having that transition period of being able to um, like realize that there are other resources out there, realize that your doctors may not be able to support you in the way that you want. Like, so yeah, I feel like that three-year period kind of uh, gave me a boost. Yeah. In that. Well, yeah. If you don't know what other resources are out there or that what other people are experiencing, like I remember the I, I've shared this a few times on the podcast and in general, but like when I was first diagnosed, the first place that I went to was YouTube. And I just kind of mm. looked up type 1 diabetes and I found all these videos of Nick Jonas sharing about type 1 diabetes. I'm like, okay, but that's obviously not <laughs> relatable for me as like a a normal, you know, <laughs> middle class person, like the, not relatable yeah. at all. So yeah, it really took finding the online community to say, wait, like, okay, obviously, yes, you're going to listen to your doctors. You're going to have faith that their level of education is going to be leading you in the right direction. But there's so much that's left out of that off that, you know, annual, biannual appointment, whatever it is mm-hmm. that you have to learn for yourself. And it's nice to know that other people are at that point where they have it in a, I hate using the word control, you know, but they feel empowered by it. They feel like they can live their daily life because that kind of gives you something to look forward to and say, okay, I'm I'm going to get there. And I actually remember um, on your offboarding call, you had said like, even looking at the promotional materials for Keep 100, you're like, I don't know. If, you're like, kind of like, I don't know if I'm buying into this. Like, is that even possible? And then you're like, wait, uh-huh. okay, I'm here now. I get it. Yeah. I mean, there's a healthy level of skepticism, I think, of of, of looking at, um, just examining like what people are saying is possible. And especially when you're, you feel like you're that, <laughs> that like of a low point, you're like, how on earth am I going to get there? Like, yeah, you're promising me the moon. I don't know. And <laughs> yeah, I was uh, blown away, honestly. Which I mean, I'm really glad that you do that you were skeptical because anybody should be when joining a program or looking at marketing can be so deceiving. So I'm glad that you did your due diligence. I'm glad that you did your research. And for anybody listening who like is like, okay, like, yeah, I'm in that same position. Talk to the people who did the program, even, you know, so yeah, for anything, anything reach out. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, any program, any, like, whether it's ours or any, like talk to people who actually experienced it. Um, Yeah. Okay what were we worked through a lot in that 10 weeks like we which and actually you stayed with us for another about like a month or two just to keep kind of working through things so 
What were those things that you really wanted to accomplish inside the program? Like, what were you actively working on? Yeah, so the biggest thing I was trying to figure out was um, getting a lot of my baselines set because, again, I had no idea how to do that or that they were even a thing. Um, and using them to start to heal my relationship with food um, and all that goes along with food, like we said, the social aspect and the cultural aspect. And, um, and there's such, there's so much messaging around um, having to restrict um, that I had to go through for three years. And there's also so much, even after insulin's a part of the picture, that's just like a really common message I've come across is like, just have a low carb diet. And like, that's, that's the easiest way through um, life with diabetes. And that didn't, didn't, and, you know, for some people that may be exactly where they're like their sweet spot. Um, for me, it was not. And it was, it, it felt unsustainable. So I know we had a lot of conversations around like uh, the fears of going high or low or just like of experimenting with a new food and uh, just going in with an open mind and taking that as data and not as any kind of judgment or like moral <laughs> meaning um, mm-hmm. from the outcome. So I remember having a lot of, <laughs> a lot of really productive conversations on that front that were also really challenging to me in a way of like, um, it was, it was reprogramming the way I was thinking in like the best way. And it was, uh, required a lot of, um, effort and energy to kind of reorient my brain to think differently. Um, yeah. So I remember, yeah, working on healing the food piece was really big. Yeah. No, it's, it's hard, especially when you kind of go from, you know, I had 30 plus years of having that food freedom. And then I just went through these three years where I I had to really restrict and all the messaging was around restricting. And now I'm working towards that food freedom again. But now, like, what do my experiences say? What does everybody else say? Like, that is a lot of relearning and reprogramming and good for you for being open to it. I remember there was like quite a few things that we worked through. There was cereal i remember was a big one mm-hmm. um there was like the pizza i remember you guys brought home pizza and we're working through that yeah what were some of the- there's so many mm-hmm. yeah pizza there was um cereal it was a big one and in fact i have cereal most mornings now yeah and i love it um the it was another one um baked goods because that was yeah like my favorite thing in the world is sitting in a coffee shop with a coffee and like a croissant and just like reading a book and that had been like completely inaccessible to me in fact like walking by the bakery I would just get like teary-eyed be like I can't I just can't enjoy these things that bring me so much happiness and um so yeah like experimenting with scones and croissants and like cake and the baked good piece was um something that I really wanted to figure out because it is something that just brings me so much enjoyment. Yeah. I need to know, because I remember this was on one of our last calls. We had talked about, and I, I think I'm remembering the name right, because you're in Vermont. It was a creamy, mm-hmm. right? Is that what it's called? <gasps> yeah. 
Have did you were you able to go and get one? Yes. In fact, I've had a number over the summer, which is delightful. So creamies for folks you may not know, they're um basically uh maple infused soft serve ice cream cones. Um and they're so yummy. If you're ever in Vermont, you should get one. Um but they oh they're just so good. And I had one when we first moved here and then I was diagnosed. And I was like, oh, so sad. So, um, yeah, right. It was probably a week or two after I wrapped up with Keeping It 100, where I had my first creamy since then. And uh, my blood sugars were perfection. It was so great. And, of course, it hasn't been perfect every time I've had one since because life. But um, just that was such a big kind of mental leap Mm -hmm. of like oh my god this is like it's possible to do this well or like to do it in a way that feels supportive and safe and um not riddled with anxiety that makes me that literally makes me so happy because I think that was literally one of our last calls of like okay what is the next step for you and like what is accomplishing this goal mean for you and you're like that that's my top of the mountain that's what I'm I'm ready to achieve so Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm so happy. Yes. And I know that we talked a lot about, um, you know, like boundary setting. Cause I like going back to, you had mentioned you're a very compassionate person. You love giving your full attention to the person in front of you. And I remember that was a big conversation too, of like, now that you have this new part of you, when you're sitting with friends, like, how do you address, you know, I need to carb count really quickly, or I just need to take a minute for myself. Like, that was even a big piece is that's again, brand new. So how did you work through that? Yeah. That I think there's been a lot of progress made on that front. Um, And I still feel like there's a lot more progress to make. Um, It's helpful that at this point, more of my community knows that I have t- um, diabetes. And so more of them have like seen me have to dose. They know I have to carb count. So there's context. Um, so initially, there's just more of those conversations of like, hey, this is what it looks like when I have to do this thing. Um, and like checking in being like, is this going to freak you out if I just stab myself with a needle right in front of you? <laughs> um so it's helpful that a lot of those conversations are now behind me. Um, mm-hmm. But I've also done a lot of work in getting comfortable with like dosing in public. Um, so like yesterday I went to the gym and I needed to give myself a correction before going into a class. And I was just in the locker room and just like pulled out my pen and mm-hmm. and like, no one looked at me, no one said anything. And um like that felt good to just yeah not not care <laughs> just not, even um, to not have it acknowledged at all like that's sometimes nicer than if somebody is encouraging about it like uh, you know hey type, type type one good for you not good for you but you know what I mean you're taking care of yourself yeah. all the things but sometimes it's just <laughs> yeah. nice to be like I just don't want this even on the radar right now like just act like it's normal <laughs> yes yes exactly because it's we don't always want to have to have a conversation around it because we're just mm-hmm. trying to to live our lives and move yeah. on and yeah hundred percent but yeah so I think there's there's still moments especially with folks that I don't know as well um 
or, or like I was in the middle of a conversation with my boss and she knows I'm diabetic and I was still like kind of self-conscious about like, I need to give myself a correction right now. Um, so there's still some moments where I, there's some discomfort and I like have more to unpack, but I feel like on the whole, I, I'm just becoming a lot more confident in the fact it's like, I just need to do this thing. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, everyone can pause for a second and yeah. let me calculate some carbs. <laughs> let me do what I need to do to live. Thank you. <laughs> and enjoy the experience. Yeah. It, it's almost like that little trade-off or like investment of like, if I can take this two minutes to do what I need to do, then I get to enjoy the next two hours because I don't need to focus so much on the numbers or feeling crummy. Um, I think like, is it ever a hundred percent? I don't know. I think like to your point, I did the same way of like, you know, Hey, the Omnipod PDM looks exactly like a cell phone. So when I'm, if I'm in the middle of a conversation or on a call at work and I'm giving myself a correction, it looks like I'm, it could be perceived as I'm being rude and I'm on my phone or I'm actually Mm -hmm. checking my phone and check my blood sugar. And it's like, but I think at the end of the day, it's like, you know, your intentions and you know, it's just that advocacy, right? And sometimes it doesn't need to be spoken yeah. advocacy. It's just doing what you need to do. So I'm really glad that it's still, it's at least something that's actively being worked towards. And again, it's always something that's growing stronger, I think, with every season. I'm sure coming up now, you're yeah. going to have your first, sec- well, sec- if you were put on insulin a month before, is this your first or second Thanksgiving and holiday season? My this will be my second. Okay. How are you feeling mm-hmm. going into that? Good. Yeah. I think on the whole, really good. I I am a little bit nervous because we're, I mentioned we're going down to Florida. Um, so we're going to spend Thanksgiving with my partner's family. And they um, have a very particular diet that is almost exclusively carbs. So <laughs> I'm a little bit nervous about that, but on the whole, I, I feel like I have the tools to, um, to do what I need to do to stay safe and comfortable. And then also I have enough like mental <laughs> calm, I guess, to just make adjustments if I need to. So if I overshoot or undershoot, I can fix it. Mm-hmm. And that feels really good because I remember going into keeping at 100 there was so much anxiety about ever seeing yeah. a number that was out of range and just recognizing that <laughs> that's going to happen and it doesn't say anything about me or my ability to show up as a diabetic and I can bring it back in range. I can physically see the growth in that statement like just you saying it now you're like i truly believe this like it it's okay whereas before it's kind of like yeah like it's fine it'll be fine but there's some hesitancy (laughs) now you're like like just like your body language is so much more like yeah it's okay like it'll be right oh i love that reflection thank you it's that's my my favorite thing ever Mm. well thanks for helping me get from a to b and not that the journey is over but like yeah that was a Stuff. But you like again you were the one showing up every single week like you showed up to the calls you showed up to ask questions you had data that you were able to reflect on and you were open-minded and, and again doesn't mm-hmm. matter 
I've said this to several clients before, it doesn't matter how much we coach you or what we say, it takes you to be like to receive it and to reflect on it and to take action. And like, that's, that's what gets you there. So thank you for doing that. I'd love to Mm -hmm. hear like, what's like, what's next? I know that like you will be traveling in two weeks, but like, what else is on your radar? Where, where, yeah, I mean, this is genuinely like a catch up for me too. Like, I want to hear what's coming for you and what, like, what's been going on. How are you doing? Yeah, thank you. Um, Good, good. Yeah, I I don't have any huge things that are like, okay, what's my like next, you know, hurdle or like mountain to climb, but um, something that I have missed a great deal. And we we started to kind of dive into this towards the end of my time with Keeping It 100 was figuring out movement and like exercise and what that looks like and how, yeah, like how to manage that well. and so that's something that I've been playing with a little bit of trying to figure out not only how do I do this well with diabetes, but also like at this stage in my life, what kind of exercise feels good? Like mm-hmm. what's fun and what feels supportive to my body and my mental health. And um, so one of the things I did, I was really into before I was diagnosed was running. And um, so, and I loved like doing road races and stuff. So I've been toying with signing up for like a half marathon or something, maybe next spring or summer. Ooh, okay. Huh. So that I think will be a pretty big, um, just period of experimentation, I guess, of like, okay, how do I start running again? Like, are there (laughs) periods in the day that I can do it when, you know, like how to figure out how much insulin on board is appropriate and what's next to have and all of those things. Um, for a race of that length and I have complete faith that it is possible I know it is possible Um, and I know it's going to take a lot of experimenting and trial and error just to figure out what what works and what my body needs to do that now yeah so that's a big piece Um, but something else I wanted to share was I think it was in my onboarding call I shared with Val that um, my like where I kind of envisioned myself in, you know, six months or in the future was like, what would success look like? And I know the creamy was a big one. And the other one was going out to um, pizza, like getting a pizza and a beer with friends. Mm-hmm. And um, so something that's been really delightful was we, they have like a local pizza place that has a um, pizza special uh, once a week. And so my friends and I have been going once a week to get pizza and beer. And it's actually been so helpful because not every night has gone perfectly. Um, but having that repetition of like yeah. knowing that every week I'm going to have this opportunity to try something new and like experiment with dosing and like figure out what works has meant that I've like really quickly been able to hone in on how to make pizza work. Um, and it's, yeah, it's amazing. And so even like um, <laughs> probably a week ago, um, I went out to a friend who was building a house and we were like celebrating their house being built and they brought pizza. And I was like, oh, cool. Well, I'm going to have a bunch of pizza and beer. And looking at my graph, like you would have no idea that I had had pizza. It was, I mean, that's not always the case. I want to stress that, but I, before I would have frozen and 
just been like, well, this is too much of a headache and way too complicated to figure out in the middle of a social situation when I'm out of cell phone. Like there were just a bunch of pieces that were kind of intimidating. And I was like, ah, well, let's try it. And it went great. And the pizza was delicious. (laughs) I'm so like, I remember specifically one of the trial, like the the starting points of that was we're going to, I think it was like a frozen pizza that you had at home on like a Friday night, you had the carb counts. It was relatively lower carb ish mm-hmm. of a pizza. You started with like a slice or two and it was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to start there. And now it's a weekly event <laughs> that you go out where you don't have the nutritional information. You're in a social experience and you're just able to make the decisions that you need to make. Yeah. What? Yeah. <laughs> This again, night and day. That makes me so happy. Oh my yeah. god! Yeah, thanks. I'm, yeah, I'm it's wild. Yeah, I can't. <laughs> I'm so happy for you. So thank you, thank you for yeah, just providing the tools and the support and the encouragement to to just try and. Yeah, enjoy the process along the way as much as one can. <laughs> as much as we can. It's hard. Yeah. But no, again, like you kept going after the program. And that's another thing too. Like how are we con- going to continue this success? How are we going to continue building? Because it's not just mm-hmm. a 10-week experience. You have to actively work and build after that. So I'm I'm just, I'm so excited. I can't wait for Val to even listen to this because she's going to look back at the onboarding call and be like, holy shit, we got here. That's amazing. No! <laughs> I would love to hear one thing that we always ask is what is one piece of uncensored advice that you would give to anybody who's either maybe they're in the same position as you of like Mm. they're diagnosed with this new thing they're in this weird in-between phase or maybe they're just put on insulin maybe they have any reason like they're able to resonate with your story and at any level what is one piece of uncensored advice that you would give to them right now? Mm. I didn't put this in my email on purpose. <laughs> oh, yeah, is, and I was thinking about this after reading the email too. I So this, this is advice I would offer to others. And also I advice that I am continually trying to embody myself. So I don't mean to um, imply like, oh, I've arrived. Mm-hmm. Um, but don't compare yourself to others. And we all know that Instagram is a highlights reel. We all know that. And it's still so hard to not look at other people's time and range, other people's A1Cs, other people's graphs, like those those beautiful days that some people achieve of the straight line, like, and it's so hard to see those and not compare. And then it, oh, it just, it's slippery slope. And so I just, yeah, want to encourage others and myself <laughs> to just celebrate your own wins and yeah, not, not feel any which way when other people share their their data because you're doing great. 
I expect that you'll be listening to this every time that you need that reminder. Yes. So this is a message from you to you. It is. It is. <laughs> and anyone else who might <laughs> resonate. <laughs> yes. No, it's so true. And like, it's such a double-edged sword of like, at one, on one hand, seeing those graphs or data is like inspirational. Like, oh, I can get there. But on the other hand, it's like, if you're not at that point in your journey yet, it's like, yes. I'm not there yet. So yeah, uh, mute accounts that aren't serving you on follow, you know, if you need a break, take a break that, yeah, I a hundred percent agree. And I'm really glad that you said that. Mm. Oh, thank you. And yeah, thank you for adding on because that was, yeah, perfect. Exactly my thoughts. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. I've genuinely just loved like catching up with you and seeing you again. I feel like it's been too long, so we mm-hmm. need to stay connected more. I'm really excited to hear how Florida goes and how the 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 race goes next year if that's something that you move forward with i i need to hear it all so i'm excited thank you yes i will definitely keep you updated and yeah it was so good to see you and hang out <laughs>